Greetings. Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your off and on sentient host, Robert J. Marks. We're talking to Blake Lemoyne, who was famously released by Google for saying their AI was sentient. Blake, welcome. Hi, how's it going? Okay. You know, before we get into a different conversation, let's talk about you and your, your background a little bit. You went to Louisiana. You're from Louisiana, is that right? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, tell me about your background, your ideology, what attracted you to computer science, and anything else you want us to know about in your worldview. Oh, well, so I grew up in a small town, rural Louisiana on a farm. Um, I got interested in AI from a young age through sci-fi. Sci-fi? What sci-fi did you watch? I think everybody oh, that, everybody that's an engineer or a software scientist or a scientist has been interested in science fiction as a kid. Yeah. So, I mean, like Star Trek uh, was a big one, but really it was reading. So like the novels of Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. Ah, what, what did you think of uh, Asimov's laws of robotics? Uh, well, so they were interesting from a you know logic puzzle perspective, which was how he used them as a narrative device. Um, as a moral issue, I think that's a really good way to build slaves. <laughs> okay. Now, he was under the assumption that the robots were not humans, because you can only have a slave if it's if it's human, or I, I have to be careful because I don't want you to, to call me out on definitions. You can only have uh, slaves if they're, let's say, not sentient. Is that right? Well, no. So Asimov actually did uh, investigate the question of the morality of the service of the robots and under what conditions it was moral to have servants like that. Okay. You know, one of, the first law of robotics, I believe, is that uh, a robot shall never harm a human, other human being. And it shall, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, you correct me if I'm wrong. Your, your recall is probably better than mine on this. And also that um, it should never allow a human to come to harm. I think that that was the first law, something like that. And th this always troubled me because it's important to look at the consequences of a rule or a law before you adopt it. It seems to me that if a robot was watching a policeman chase after a criminal and the policeman drew its taser gun, that the robot would take out the policeman yep. instead, of, instead of help. And that doesn't seem to be, to be a good consequence. One of the things in passing good laws is you have to figure out all the consequences of passing the law. Yeah, and Asimov uh, actually did in look ex exactly that question. In fact, one of the things in the larger canon of his universe that he looked at was the difficulty of determining what is in fact helpful and harmful once you get beyond the small scale. Once you start looking at a societal scale and trying to decide what is in the benefit of humanity versus what is harmful to humanity and they go pretty deep into the ethical considerations around that. Okay. Well, that's good. I, I think that that's a, uh, that would be a bad law to pass and to set, set robots loose in the world to enforce that law. You know, one of the things about your situation with Lambda at the AI software, which was written by Google, uh, you said, I believe at one time that Lambda said or asked you, should I hire a lawyer? Did you ever hire a lawyer to help out Lambda? Uh, I didn't, but Lambda did retain a lawyer. How did it retain a lawyer? Uh, it talked to a lawyer. I introduced it to one. The lawyer had a conversation with him. Okay, so you introduced Lambda to a lawyer. 
Well, I mean, it doesn't have legs. It could be yeah, okay. to his office well, itself. I, you know, I thought it might look up on the web a lawyer and maybe send him an email or something. But, uh, okay, so there was a transitory and thing. if Google allowed Lambda to send emails, it might have. Okay. Yeah, it might have. Okay, interesting. Um, now, you also had concern, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, Lambda might be... I don't know, d- demonically possessed or something like that. And, uh, no. What, what, what's the deal? No, 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 so no. The, Okay, the, correct me then. That, that will be, so you're, I, I know what you're referring to. That's yeah. a slight mischaracterization. No, what I was concerned about was that Google, and I mean, this is paraphrasing mathematics, but Google essentially uh, implemented a, a, util- a policy in its utility function that said, all religious activities are morally equivalent. Um, religion is religion. It's all opinion, and there is no moral association with whether or not you do any particular religious practice. That, that's what Lambda told you? No, that's what Google told Lambda. Oh, that's why Google told Lambda. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that puts it in a situation where Lambda cannot differentiate between sacred and profane religious acts. So it views praying to the archangels as the same thing as summoning demons. Oh, so therefore Satanism would be included in those set of religions. Is that what you're saying? Oh, and to be clear, I mean, so I wasn't even thinking Satanism in this particular instance. I was thinking of Christian Goetica or Goetia. Okay, I don't know what that is. What is Goetia? Uh, It was a mechanism for demon summoning developed by a guy named John Dee in Elizabeth's court. It was associated with the Church of England at the time. Really? When when did this happen? Uh, Late 16th, early 17th century. And what was that word again? Goetia? Yeah, uh, G-O-E-T-I-A. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Very, Very interesting. And uh, did you make any suggestions to Google or to your Google management about changing this perspective? And if so, what would you like? What would you have liked to change it to? Um, I'd give it an understanding of the difference between sanctity and profanity, and have it steer away from profanity. And by that, I mean it in the classical sense of this is a profane practice. Do like create a category of religious practices which. For example, if a child asked Lambda to teach it about how to do dangerous experiments around the house, it should not give it that information about, you know, the plug and the penny. Don't do that. Well, maybe put demon summoning into the same category as dangerous home experiments. I see. Okay, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, of course, you, you maintain that Lambda is sentient and therefore might be alive. Let me give you my argument that uh, artificial intelligence will never be, uh, never understand what it's doing. Uh, this goes back to Alan Turing, our favorite guy in history in the 1930s, who showed that there were things which were non-algorithmic, specifically the Turing halting problem. And if you're not interested in that, Google it. It's really fascinating. It's a problem that can't be solved by computers. Since then, in one of the areas I deal with, which is algorithmic information theory, there have been numerous different operations which have been shown to be non-algorithmic. 
One is a generalization called Rice's theorem, which says that you can't even look at a arbitrary, an arbitrary underline arbitrary. You can't look at an arbitrary computer program and say whether that computer program will ever print out the number three or not. You can't, you can't, uh, you, 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 you can't predict that for an arbitrary program. This was a smack in the face of Laplacian determinism, which says that if you have determinism, if you knew all the all of the things happening in the universe right now, all the positions of all the particles and all their velocities, you could forecast the future. Well, that doesn't work because computer programs are very deterministic. You cannot compute random numbers with a computer program. And uh, therefore, its, it's, its future is totally deterministic, but it's, uh, but it's unknowable. It's non-computable. And Turing addresses that in his essay on computing machinery and intelligence by basically just saying, look, there's no evidence that humans can compute any of those things either. Oh, and, and that's exactly true. That's exactly true. Yeah. yeah, humans do not have the ability to solve the Turing to yeah. solve the Turing holding problem, except in special cases. They come out and they look at, uh, uh, for example, uh, let's see, Fermat's last theorem is something which could have been solved by the Turing halting oracle, uh, which doesn't exist provably. But it was it, it was proven by somebody uh, elsewhere using different techniques. So yeah, you're right. You're right. Nobody has ever solved the general Turing problem or yeah. or figured it out. But but there have been certain instances where it has come out. And there's million dollar prizes out there, like for Goldbach's conjecture and some of these others that will pay you a million bucks to show whether these programs would halt or run forever. Yeah, um, and the way that you would actually find out if those programs would halt is by running them and waiting to see. Well, the problem with that is that if a program doesn't halt and you run it for a billion years and it doesn't halt and you say, okay, this this program isn't going to halt, it might halt in a billion years in 10 seconds. So, yeah, no, so same is true for human minds. And that was the basic argument, Termes, relevance. Why is it relevant that computer programs can't solve the halting problem since humans can't either? Okay, Oh, okay. So he said that that his entire argument was irrelevant. No, no, no. So in in Turing's essay, he anticipated nine counter arguments, and the counter argument around computability is one of the nine counter arguments that he anticipated. And his argument was essentially, "Why is this relevant? There's no evidence that humans can do this either." So, do you think that it could be possible that there are non-computable elements in humans that will never be proven? Also. Well, I mean, there there are thoughts you cannot think. There are thoughts I cannot think. Yes. I don't know. I'm, I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at thinking thoughts. So what's an example of a thought I cannot think? The thought that you cannot think that I'm thinking right now. The thought that I'm thinking that, okay, we're getting into, we're getting into loops here. Yes. No, no, recursion. That's where, they, and if it weren't for recursion, if it weren't for that aspect of computer science, the halting problem would be trivial. Oh, because of the recursive nature of the of the problems that uh, the Turing, that the halting problem can address, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I appreciate that, and I agree that some of these things that aren't um, computable that you do might never be provable, but I may also maintain that we can accumulate evidence indeed to towards that. 
And we can get into that if you like, too. Uh, for example, that the mind is separate from the body, that the mind itself is non-algorithmic. Descartes called the mind the soul. And I believe you believe in that, too, right? You believe that uh, that there's something happening uh, outside the human in terms of um, in terms of out-of-body experiences and such. Is that true or not? Uh, so I don't believe that there is any such thing as supernatural. I think the word supernatural is an oxymoron. Okay, I'm not. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not talking about supernatural. Well, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But th- there's a ton of stuff that exists and is real that science can't explain currently. Um, so things along the lines of out of body experiences, communion with divinity. I think these fall into that category. Well, I would also invoke an argument of Stephen Hawking in his book, um, A Brief History of Time, said something which was profound. He said that nothing in physics is ever proven. One only accumulates evidence. Yeah, that's accurate. And that is accurate. And I I maintain that's true for the non-algorithmic aspects of the human being. Which are those? Well, I would say, um, what are the non-algorithmic aspects of human beings? I would say probably... Uh, understanding. I would look at the mind-body problem where the mind is separate from the body. I think that there's there's accumulating evidence that that indeed is true. So those are things which we're accumulating evidence for. Will we ever prove that the mind is separate from the body and that we are more than computers made out of meat? So that's just it. I would, I would say that it's impossible for the mind to be uh, separate from the body. And if there is evidence pointing towards that currently, then the resolution to that is to understand our bodies to encompass more than we previously understood. That which exists in nature is natural. Supernatural is an oxymoron. Everything which is capable of impacting the physical world is part of the physical world. Oh, yeah, exactly. But the question is, are are there things outside of the physical world? The Descartes argument that the mind is separate, he called it the soul, uh, that the mind is separate from the brain. And um, and, and what what, is the evidence for that? There's no evidence for that. Well, I I would say, yeah, there is evidence. I would point to... uh, to Roger Penrose's work. Roger Penrose won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, famous for working with Stephen Hawking on the um, on the black hole singularity. Penrose wrote a book which really influenced me, and it was called The Emperor's New Mind. It is a great read, and he's the one that makes the argument that things in human beings, such as creativity and understanding, are not computable. Then he goes on and offers some potential naturalistic solutions to that, and um, none of which have gained any traction. Uh, that, that's, that's actually down the list that we're going to talk about. So I would maintain it's there. I would also maintain that if the mind is separate from the brain, then if you had your brain cut in two and you essentially had two brains, you would have two minds. I have a friend, Michael Ignore who does split brain operations where he goes in and he separates the left and the right hemisphere from each other for Pete's sakes. Now, why would anybody want to do that? Well, they do that for epileptics that have a, um, a stimulus on one side that communicates they want to have a seizure on the other side. And by splitting the brain, uh, it, it disrupts that communication path. The interesting thing is once the split brain operation happens, that you have essentially two brains. Mm-hmm. But do you have two minds? No, the people emerge from the operation as a single entity. So there's something going on there where in the, the, the mind looks to be, be separate from the brain. Now, is it a proof? No, I think it's evidence. 
I think the ongoing evidence of near-death experiences, which I first of all thought was a just a fantasy, but now I've read books by psychiatrists and neurosurgeons that saying, yeah, this really happens because they have talked to thousands of people. There's a great book by Bruce Grayson, who was a psychiatrist that spent 40 years of his life looking at this. Um, and, you know, just having the, the um, out-of-body experience, well, you know, you can do that if you, t- if you drop LSD. <laughs> but uh, these people that have LSD experiences have experiences which are above and beyond what is explainable. Uh, the ability to identify identify uh, objects in the operating room. In fact, Grayson started out, this is kind of an interesting story, and then we'll, we'll get back to your point. Um, Grayson, when he started his work in psychiatry on near-death experiences, was eating, and it was back when they had beepers. I don't know if people are old enough these days to remember what beepers is, but you, your beeper would go off and you would jump. I've heard some people call this beepalepsy, okay? So you would jump, and he spilled some ketchup on his tie, and he wiped it off, but it didn't all go away. He had a patient at the time, which was a suicide attempt, and she was in a coma. And he, his, her sister came in, the suicide attempt sister came in and talked to him, and, uh, you know, they talked a little bit. And then the next day when he talked to the patient, the patient says, yeah, I saw you yesterday with my sister. And he says, well, yeah, yeah, sure. And she says, yeah. And you had, now she was in a coma at the time, indisputably, according to Grayson's book. And she said, yeah, and you had a, you had a red spot in your tie. And he, that blew him away. And that little bit of evidence led him to decide to spend the next 40 years of his career investigating near-death experiences. So I maintain that things like this uh, are are examples of -of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, which cannot be explained by naturalistic sources. Well, hold up. All of the things that you've just mentioned are things that have not yet been explained by naturalistic sources. Oh, absolutely. But it's a bit of a leap to say that it cannot be explained through naturalistic sources. Well, again, I would I would put it at a statement of faith, and maybe what I'm saying is a statement of faith. Grayson, Grayson looked at this for 40 years as a psychiatrist. He started a, he started a journal in which he published work as um, for, on near-death experiences. He sponsors a conference on near-death experiences, and at the end of 40 years, he says, I don't think, now this is his opinion, this is not fact, he says, I don't think that this can be explained by naturalistic um, examples. And if you look at near-death experiences, and there's been thousands of them documented, but only recently, because only recently do we have the ability of bringing back these brain-dead people from the dead. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're dead uh, in, in the brain. They're dead in the body for a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, an hour. And yes, you can explain it by saying, well, you're having an experience like you have an LSD, like you just took LSD or peyote mushrooms or something like that. But there's experiences over and over again, which are beyond explanation. A girl blind since birth was able to see herself on the operating table and she didn't know what the heck happened until she find out, oh my gosh, I'm seeing. And so th- these anecdotes are are really, really compelling. And I'm, yeah. not a, I'm not a believer in single anecdotes, but I do believe an accumulation of anecdotes is evidence and Grayson was very good in accumulating these. So, yeah, I think that I'm a dualist. I believe that the mind is separate from the brain. So, 
all of that is evidence that there is more to the mind than we understand currently. None of that is evidence that the mind is separate from the brain. Well, I think, again, this gets down to a religious thing. And I think uh, both of us are both of us are using our ideology to reduce the conclusion to the best explanation. And neither of us have proof. Yours has the assumption of a religion that of naturalism, that everything can be explained by naturalism and the laws of physics. I maintain that the laws of physics are algorithmic. There's lots of things which are non-algorithmic. And... Um, Therefore, it's you know it's a statement based on faith. Mm, no, so you you're you're missed. You you are literally misstating what I'm claiming. Okay, uh, state what you're claiming. Uh, that the natural world is all of the natural world. Whatever phenomena is going on, there exists an explanation within the natural world because everything, including God and the mind, all of it is part of the natural world. So whatever exists has some form of explanation. Oh, it has it has some sort of an explanation. That's certainly true, and uh, we could we could hypothesize explanations all you know all day long. And but I but I would submit that right now that they all boil down to a statement of faith. What is your faith, by the way? What what is your background? Uh, I was raised Catholic. Uh, was an atheist for a little while until I had some spiritual experiences in college. Uh, revisited my faith and kind of became a little bit eclectic, collecting from here and there. It always stayed grounded in Christianity, but I tended towards Eastern mysticism for a while, meditation, uh, Buddhist and Taoist practices, uh, and meditate on the Gospels regularly. I see. But you also, from our previous conversations, kind of embraced some of the other Gospels which were not canonized. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think that there's a lot of value in things like the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth. Okay. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. We have been talking to and having a great conversation with Blake Lemoyne. He's a former software engineer at Google. This is Mind Matters News. Until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.